that being said, the, really the role of the senior leader is two things. One is to look out ahead, to scan the horizon, to be looking for opportunities, how to make the pie bigger, what are the innovations that we need to be happening, looking for. And, and he said, don't worry about your competitor, because if, if you're worried about your competitor, you're already beaten. So it's not that he, you're ignoring your competitor, but the point is to try to make the pie bigger through innovation. The second thing is, is to help put everybody in the organization to work on the transformation to the new way of thinking, to the new philosophy of, of management. So that's the role of the senior leader. And the role of the manager then is to help do several things. One, help people be successful within the system and processes and procedures and to be continually improving those rather than trying to hold individuals accountable because through the math, through the control chart thinking, we can prove that about 94, 95, 96, 97% of the time, the outputs are the result of the system not the result of an individual. But yet most HR people are taught to, and other leaders are taught to look and blame people. And they're only about three to seven, 6% of the issue. So we're spending 97% of our resources on 3% of the problem. We need to flip that. That's thinking differently. I'm going to suggest to you, and I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to suggest to you that applying that thinking to environmental stewardship is exactly what has to happen. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Kelly Allen is experienced in the theory, practice, and community of Edwards Deming. If you don't know Deming, you'll hear from this conversation, but for context, Personally, growing up, my top role models were Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Thoreau, Mandela, people like that. They were for leadership, but for sustainability, as I practiced, I realized acting in harmony with nature and helping others to change, to act by deeper values than they led day to day, it differed from those leaders. New role models emerged for me. General Patton, Eisenhower, Muhammad Ali, then came Deming. Deming transformed a war-destroyed Japan starting in 1950 after helping win World War II on the U.S. side in a way comparable and a magnitude comparable to developing radar or cracking the Nazis' codes for sending their secret messages, not something on the front line, but equally valuable for winning the war effort. That's the scale of what Deming did. Not many people know him outside of the Deming world. Kelly has been learning and teaching Deming for decades. This episode may run long, but recording these words now, just after recording our conversation, I'm as enthusiastic, motivated, and optimistic as from any conversation. I think you'll feel the same way hearing what there is to learn and apply from such a successful, successful on a national and global scale of what Deming did in a time frame that we have. He turned around Japan in under five years, not just him alone. He was part of a lot of other people, but he played a major role. Kelly and I talk about specific ways to follow up just knowing a transformation of a nation without hope in under five years as possible to specific next steps. Here's Kelly Allen. Welcome to the Leadership Environment Podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Kelly Allen. Kelly, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Great to have you here. And you are an expert on W. Edwards Deming practice and theory. Is that about right? Yeah, well, X is an unknown quantity and spurts a shot of water. So I guess that <laughs> I think those of us in the Deming community 
balk at that kind of terminology. But I, I know I know some things about Deming, definitely. Well, I've heard you on podcasts and I've heard you, I saw your one-on-one on Deming and it seemed you had experience and it seemed that you've worked with people who after they work with you, they say it changed a lot in ways beyond what they, like they thought they'd get more efficient or they thought they'd get more effective and it changed their relationships with everyone, things like that. Well, that's nice to hear. Yes, that's, that's trying to make that difference is a key thing to our philosophy. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Well, I guess for some grounding, I want to talk to you about, about the practice, about the theory, but maybe, do you mind if I ask, how did you get started? What led you in this direction? I uh, was lucky enough to hear the original, see the original, If Japan Can, Why Can't We, NBC documentary, in which Deming's featured. And I thought this guy knows things. And He's already 80 years old. So if you want to find some stuff out, you should probably start investigating if he had just been discovered in this country. So from there, I started uh, Out of the Crisis was published. And uh, sometime later, I started going to Deming conferences and uh, reading more and more about what other people had been writing. And even Jim Collins was one of the early advocates of Deming back in the 80s. So there was a lot of activity going on. And and the more I learned about it, the more sense it made to me, both efficient and effective and humane. Yeah, that humane is the the unexpected part, I think, for a lot of people. And he's really, there's so much emotion in it and so much dignity and expectation of, of, we all have passion. I don't know if this is the right terminology, but we all have this passion in us. We all want to show up to work and give our all really be a part of a team. I would agree with all that. The, the dignity of work, he referred to it as pride and joy in work, and that we're all born uh, wanting to make a difference. And that gives us life, that gives us energy. That's the part of that well of intrinsic motivation. That's where that comes from. And I'm going to jump right into my interest here, because I just said this to you, I heard, heard about him almost 15, no, more than 15, almost 20 years ago now. And I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. If I ever go into operations, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Now that stewardship has become very important to me in sustainability, systemic change, then he's become a role model. And I haven't worked with his stuff very long or in, in great detail, but it feels like what he was able to do in Japan in the time frame that he did it is a sort of change that we could use these days I'm not sure of that scale and that joy. I mean, the emperor gave him an award. That seems pretty big. And it seems like before he got there, I don't know what it was like. I would guess that they were in, in disarray, having World War II having ended. The industry could not have been very effective at that time. Their reputation, I think, was, I guess, low quality, low price, and probably not even worth a price. And I don't know what sense of community they had or what the culture there was like. But he's not Japanese. I don't think of Japanese as normally being like, let's bring in an outsider. I I don't know the culture in the 50s. And within a few years, they had transformed. The world was responding to them. They were leaders. And I don't think there could have been much of cracking the whip or him telling them what to do. It must have been all him inviting them and working with them and collaborating. This to me seems an incredible model to apply to say, the United States with our environmental situation. I I would agree. 
And one of the things he talked about is that he didn't take the traditional style of thinking or leadership or management to Japan. He taught them a new way to think and a new way to lead. And that's what made a huge difference. So he was invited in by them. And then he invited in return, invited them to start sharing his thinking. And I suppose as learners, they were ready. As you say, the country was devastated by the war. And they were looking for a means to recover. And it was so successful. And I don't know if, it, I'm not saying it was easy, but the, the key with Deming is not so much that it's hard to learn. I mean, he really has the four elements of the system of profound knowledge and then quality tools. And, you know, most people can learn four things. You know, he's not talking about 40 or 400 things you have to learn, but four things, which are a lens, a different way to see the world. And that's what's challenging for most people is to take that step from the traditional bubble to actually even recognize that that traditional thinking is a bubble and to get at least a leg out of that, a foot out of that into a new way of thinking. And once that starts and people see how much more humane it is, how much better it is in terms of costs go down and quality goes up, productivity goes up, profitability goes up. If you're a nonprofit, effectiveness goes up, a joy in work goes up, everything, everything that you want improves. And there aren't the negative unintended consequences that come from the traditional way of management. So in terms of the environment, he would see the world as a system and probably larger than the world because the environment extends well into space mm-hmm. uh, as well. So he would, he would see our ecosystem as a, truly as a system and we are inputs uh, to that system and how we interact with that system, uh, respect that system, improve that system would fit with his model that if you understand what the aim is, your costs will go down and your quality will go up. And he was the, the magic of Deming. One of the first things that he had that nobody else uh, had, as far as I've ever uh, seen, read, is that it used to be believed that if you wanted higher quality, you had to have higher costs. And Deming said, if you will think differently, you can have higher quality and lower costs. And that is the holy grail. That is the incredible insight that he had. And of course, it's true. It's true. Did the insight come from him just thinking that, or did it come from the statistics that he brought in from the census? And I think it was probably a combination. I don't know for a fact, and, I, and I've read a variety of things about that. My sense is that he was probably a genius. He, he did have ways of connecting dots that were different from other people. But as a physicist, he understood, a uh, mathematical physicist, he understood that math and how you can look at things through a lens of understanding variation. And that if you can segment variation into the two categories of special cause and common cause, now you know how to go to work on the variation. And as you reduce the variation, quality improves and costs go down. But most people are never taught that there's two types of variation. And if you apply the wrong strategy, to variation, you're going to typically make things worse. So if you try to fix something that's uh, 
special by using a common cause approach, or you try to use a special cause approach, go find out why that number is different from the other numbers, uh, you'll make things worse. If it's a common cause system, that number is to be expected, is predictable within the system. I'm trying to get if, is the best, if Deming's approach applies to stewardship, to sustainability, would the best course be to, is it strictly applying what he taught corporations or corporate leaders, or is it going a step back? And I don't think that stewardship is, is a matter of, of producing a product or a service. Uh, no, st- environmental stewardship is, uh, if we'd say the aim is to uh, create a sustainable, healthy environment, because he was he stressed the importance of having an aim. So if the aim is to, uh, and maybe you have a better operational definition of what that aim is, but that environmental stewardship has to have an aim, which might be to make sure that we can all, that we're preserving and protecting ourselves and the planet and everything in it. So that's one, that's something you would be able to measure and see uh, and evaluate. So in that case, if we do it in ways that make sense, our costs of doing that will decrease as the quality of the environment improves. That makes sense. It makes sense in the abstract and, and how it comes to happen. There's no like boss of there's no right now current leader. Right. And this weird thing for me is like feeling that that mantle is coming upon me. And the also very commonly people say, well, like when I talk to corporations, they say, well, yeah, we'd like to work on sustainability. They view it as a branding thing. They view it as something that. I mean, they'll get that there's demand from customers, from shareholders, from the media, from the government, and they get that there's something to do there. They generally want to delegate it, which I think is not possible. Well, I mean, it's possible. I don't think you can delegate it and be effective. And they also think it's going to drive up costs or it's going to be something that they have to pay for that doesn't have immediate or possibly any benefits other than perhaps a bit more customer retention. And that's the key. You, you've hit on several uh, important things there. One is that if you view the environment and sustainability, stewardship, uh, sustainability uh, through the traditional lens of cost benefit, you miss one misses the the insights of of thinking differently to ask the questions uh, about what's going on here psychologically, what's going on here in terms of the system. What's going on in terms of variation across these things we're looking at in the environment? And how do we go about improving things? So those are those four lenses. And he also addressed these kinds of issues. You know, the the system of profound knowledge is a philosophy. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of living, not just a way of leading and managing. So it infor- uh, those of us who've studied it, it informs every part of our lives. I have associates who've raised their children in a different way because of Deming. And they think about schooling in a different way because of Deming. He also said that in terms of these kinds of challenges, you know, if you have a board, uh, if you have leaders who understand it and look at it, not just from cost benefit, but from transformation, then that's a very effective lever, right? So if you have leaders who are interested in, truly making a difference and want to learn how to do that in a, in a new way. That's useful. But he also said that that kind of quality, right? So we're talking about the quality of the environment. And the quality not only starts in, quote, the boardroom, unquote, uh, with leaders, but it, the transformation also starts with the individual. 
and individual action, individual learning. So there's where I think that that fits very well with the kinds of things that I've, I've seen you do uh, with your TED Talks, et cetera, is what, what is that that I can do and not limit myself to traditional thinking? It's the what if thinking. And then you try things. And that's very Deming. That's a, that's a plan, do, study, act cycle. Right? You, you have a theory. You have a plan. You make a prediction. If I do this, then this will result. You do it. You study the results. And then you do the next cycle. Everyone looks at what I do. And probably if I've spoken to 100 people about what I do, at least 99 say, but what one person does doesn't make a difference. <laughs> and I, I reject that. <laughs> and I think, I think Deming would reject that, uh, in part because he was one person who changed the world. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> and in terms of the perspective, the viewpoint, that's a viewpoint of measuring the result of this one thing, whereas my perspective is that this is how you learn what to do. If you don't, I mean, there's a couple examples I give, but one of if you, most people get in most performance-based things, if you try to play tennis by reading books, you will not learn how to play tennis. But also, if you think just practicing a few ground strokes is going to get you to Wimbledon, it won't either, but that's how you get there. Well, yeah, so that's another, so one of Deming's four areas of the system of profound knowledge is something called theory of knowledge. And what it basically says is that experience without theory teaches nothing. Uh, without theory, there, there is no experience that you can apply to anything. So you have to, to your point, if you want to learn how to play tennis, it, it might be useful to, to read some theory about how to uh, uh, handle a racket and how to position yourself on the court. But if, when you start to play, then those theories start to either prove themselves out for you or they prove themselves out in certain times, but not in other times. So you know when to use them and not to use them. But without, there's nothing more practical than theory, but it has to be uh, informed by then going to try something and studying the results. So that's why I would also reject then that one person, one individual can't make a difference for a, for a whole lot of reasons. The power of personal commitment, that joy in making a difference, it's intrinsic motivation with a capital I. Yeah, that joy, I, I'm constantly talking about joy. For When I started avoiding packaged food, I started saying how I, well, my diet became very bland for a while and then I stuck with it. And then it stopped being just steamed vegetables and I started putting stuff together and then it became really delicious. And then delicious, I was saying, find your delicious. And, and, but then delicious changed to community and connection and joy. And I keep saying joy and people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I can't describe how I, I, people who feel it, feel it. And they know it too. Yeah. I'm not sure what your theory is about that. I have a theory that basically says, um, and this is Deming again, uh, so many people are conditioned by their work environment to exist in a prison, that they become victims, that they become helpless and without hope. So it becomes a vicious cycle rather than a virtuous cycle. And you have to be able to break out of that system uh, in some way, either in your, in your personal life, if you can't in your business life, to be able to start experience joy because otherwise it's, the, uh, it's a constant grind. I mean, one of the one of the jokes I like is a uh, person person goes into work and the uh, sees the boss. The boss says, uh, "The boss told me have a great day." So I went home. <laughs> that, that that's really sad. Right? Yeah. That's uh, I don't want to work in that kind of environment. But 
let's face it. When you see the, when you see the polls and the results, uh, very few people like their jobs. Yeah, there's this dichotomy that is business or environment. And doesn't work. Yeah, the, the listeners can't see this, but you're just like, he's his just, <laughs> no, not at all. His head nodding back and forth. It doesn't work. Right. I mean, the sense of uh, that's a false choice. Right. It's not a false choice in the traditional way of thinking. Right. The traditional way of thinking says if you're going to have a higher quality environment, your costs are going to go up. That is not the Deming magic. The Deming magic is uh, the quality of the environment can go up as our costs of achieving it are, are going down. That requires a different way of thinking. That requires a commitment to learning and if most people are burnt out by the time they get home from work, they're not so interested in learning. Mm -hmm. They're tired. They're tired. So that's why it's people like you uh, who have to uh, lead this because that is your commitment. That is your, that is your work now, at least in part, part of your work. And uh, work is, is uh, enjoyable as well as make, should be enjoyable as well as making a difference. I find it invigorating. Yeah. I mean, of course I run out of, I get tired at the end of the day too. But that's a fatigue. There's an exhaustion that's like, oh, doing drudge work. But there's also exhaustion of like having really fun with your nieces and nephews when you're like, that was great. That's the exhaustion I get. I was, I was at a conference, a small one-day conference of, um, it was a fashion industry. It was at BCG, Boston Consulting Group here in New York. It was for the fashion industry about fulfillment, about how, how do they deliver stuff. This was before the pandemic. I got the whole room to look at me all of a sudden because all of them were talking about how to make their processes more efficient, self-driving trucks and things like that, computer systems to manage inventory. And I said, I don't remember exactly how to put it. I'll paraphrase myself as best I can. If everyone makes themselves more efficient, you guys will just become more efficient. Your prices will drop. People order more stuff, no, but your profits won't go up and you're, you're, you'll just be just as competitive. You won't gain market, you'll gain momentary market share, but then you'll be back where you are, except you'll be selling more stuff and more stuff is going to go into landfills. And this, oh, it was about sustainability, sustainability and fulfillment. And Systemic change means that you guys would do stuff differently and not competitively. And the whole people came up to me afterward and they're like, yes, that's what we need. But no one, no one was interested in doing that. No one saw that as something to be done. Yeah, I understand that. They, they probably did not know that it's possible. They've not seen a, a way, an example of how that works. I mean, most of us want to be able to know that we're a pathway that we're going down will lead us to where we hope to go. So without that kind of uh, intervention or without that kind of awareness or deeper interest, they have their marching orders. They have their job to do. Yeah. And they can call themselves leaders, but I would call them managers at best, and, which is not a put down. It's just a different domain. And you can, if their goal, there's this huge drive toward efficiency. And if you make a system that pollutes more efficient, you'll pollute more efficiently. That is, you'll get more pollution with less effort. And we've been making ourselves more efficient forever, certainly since the Industrial Revolution. Our problem isn't that we're not efficient enough. It's the total waste. That's the outcome. I mean, it's the total waste and what the waste is. I mean, now it's plastic and dioxin. It's not just like manure. And to me, ultimately, it's, it's the values driving that create the goals are what, that's the most important thing to change. As I see it, the two big ones of our three big ones are they were trying for growth. And the counterpart that I wanted to switch to instead would be enjoying what you have. 
And when you're in a growth mindset, enjoying what you have looks like complacency. But when you're enjoying when you're enjoying what you have, growth looks like craving and always looking wanting what you don't have. Then there's externalizing costs, you know, pouring stuff out the back instead of cleaning up after yourself. And the counters of that would be taking responsibility for how your behavior affects others. And from the perspective of externalizing costs, taking responsibility looks like you're going to lose market share and you're going to, your competitors are going to beat you. So the more that you can cut your costs, the better. Whereas from the perspective of, of stewardship, of taking responsibility, externalizing costs, pouring mercury in the water looks like cruelty. It looks inhumane. And then there's comfort and convenience. And the counter to that would be getting a joy from, the work, from your work. And then comfort and convenience looks like entitlement. And I think it would be stable to switch from those, the, the three goals that seem to drive our economic system today to these other goals. I mean, I'm sure that that'll create new problems down the road for, I'm not saying that we'll create peace and harmony forever, but in terms of the, to- the total waste in the earth and it's poison, how poisonous it is, if we don't change those, I feel like we will end up, Norm Borlaug's quote when he got the Nobel Peace Prize for the Green Revolution, he said, this buys us a little time, but if we don't keep the population from growing, we'll be back here again. And he said, I have faith that we'll figure that out, but here we are. Yeah, but, uh, there is certainly a belief, uh, and it's not that it's untrue. Uh, it's just a question, is it, is it the most useful uh, belief to say that, that we'll, we'll, as we create these messes, we'll figure out ways to uh, clean them up or to have uh, less mess in the future? And I don't know what the data looks like on that, but to be able to, you know, so if, to be able to look at, uh, again, going back to that aim of uh, environmental stewardship, if we're able to make a difference uh, and increase our, you know, you said market share, efficiency, effectiveness, pricing structure, whatever. So what if we are able to find a means to have all of that, mm-hmm. right? So that you can actually grow if that's desirable, uh, but also not destroy the environment in the process. And I think what's missing is the dialogue, the thinking that that's even possible. So again, before Deming, people thought if you're going to have higher quality, you're going to have higher costs. He proved that not to be true. But what's required is thinking differently. Mm -hmm. And that means studying the different ways of thinking so that tests, trials, experiments can be done to do exactly that. And in my experience, when organizations are able to see the new way of thinking, they get hooked and they want to do more. So the way in often, whether it's environmental stewardship or uh, helping a nonprofit serve more of its constituents, the way in is to try something that uh, has a predictive element of success to it that changes the game because we've seen it uh, through the years, there, I mean, there are very few companies of size that have not adopted at least some of the technical aspects of what Deming taught. And more and more of them are now uh, adopting the leadership uh, system, the system of profound knowledge that goes along with that. So just thinking differently about performance appraisals, for example, or pay for performance, more and more companies are unhooking from uh, sales commissions because they have started to recognize the negative unintended consequences. So if I take that example and apply it to environmental uh, stewardship, 
the negative unintended consequences are what much of what you're talking about. And some of them are done overtly. So they're not unintended. They're, they're, you know, as you say, disposing of mercury in inappropriate ways or not recycling or, or, or whatever the alternatives are. Some of those, so, so some of those are intended negative consequences or accepted, right? Mm-hmm. Negative consequences. But others are, are not foreseen. The, the, the ripple effects, three, three, four dots downstream are not seen. And so that cause and effect, uh, for most people, the cause effect is not closely linked in time. It's difficult for people to see it. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the work that you do is to point out that the ripple effects are by far, in some cases, by far more potent and negative than people ever imagined. And that the reverse can also be true, that uh, simple one one step at a time leading to the next step can make a huge difference in in the world and in a person's life. So it's not only, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me very Deming-like in one of your TED Talks was the uh, that combination of feeling that joy, feeling empowered and, and feeling, uh, what, responsible goes along with uh, it's not making a sacrifice anymore. Mm-hmm. It goes along with a higher quality of life. Whereas the traditional model is you have to make a sacrifice. And Deming said, no, you have to think differently. It doesn't mean that, uh, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows, but the aim is to, uh, as much as possible, get win-win, not only for uh, organizations, individuals, but for the environment, for community. That, that's his suggested aim, even for, an, even for an organization. But it certainly applies to the world as well. So hearing you talking about an appreciation for what you've seen of my work in the TEDx Talks and presumably this conversation, the easiest thing for me to do would be just to continue what I'm doing. I'm also thinking of like, what else? I mean, all right, so I'm partway through the new economics. And I started to read Out of the Crisis, but then Kevin suggested I go to the new economics first. So I'll, I'll read those. What else can I do? Should I do? Is it working with others who have shifted their thinking and behavior, or is it taking a course? Or is uh, well, no, that's a great question. That tells me you're you know a lifelong learner, and that's powerful. Deming was certainly a lifelong learner. He was still learning at ninety three, and making use of his his knowledge as you're doing. Going back to your tennis analogy, I, it's I think it's it's great, absolutely, to read the books. And there are more books to read, but it would also be great if you were able to attend. We're now doing virtual uh, online seminars, uh, and the Deming Learning Portal will soon be live. But the online, the uh, uh, virtual learning, we, we also, we pre-COVID, uh, did a two-and-a-half-day stand-up seminar several times a year. And that allows you to interact with people and with the facilitators with real examples in real time. And it's kind of an immersion that makes that reading all fit together in your mind. So you're getting the benefit of theory and then seeing the practice. So it's a very dynamic thing. And then just to start to, uh, and one of the things we do as facilitators is help uh, the people who attend the course, attend the seminar, take a project that uh, <laughs> what we say is start with one that's small, right? So, and that, and that's how you, it seems that that's how you, you started as well with your journey. As we say, don't try to boil the ocean. Try to boil a cup of water if, if boiling is desirable. 
Uh-huh. Uh, but start small. We are boiling some, the ocean. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's, yeah. Not, let's not be boiling the ocean, right? But uh, you start small with something, and I don't know if it would address the fashion industry or uh, the food supply chain or what it might address, but you start with an example with a partner, uh, of a, with an organization that might be interested and perhaps because all these things we always see is there's, there is competitive advantage in doing it right for most of these organizations. Not, and not just from a public relations standpoint. There's true competitive advantage from thinking differently about things, including the interrelationship with the environment. Uh, and not just to recruit you know, millennial employees who care about those things. Uh, so there are those organizations out there that um, it may take a little searching to find, but I can think of a few who, who right now might be interested in working with you on some of these things. They, they would want you to have the Deming knowledge to start. They, they would want to make sure that you were all in and committed to do that so that it's, it's uh, not, it wouldn't end up being a waste of time to them. But once you start to get that flywheel moving and then the next one's easier, and then the next one's after that is easier, just as in your own experience with your own personal life and how you were able to reduce waste. Yeah, people look at not flying as, like, they don't even connect it. It's, like, not possible. And for me, it was just the next step. And, you know, the the no food packaging or avoiding food packaging, that was a small step after, you know, going way back to stop eating meat in 1990. Then there was avoiding corn syrup and avoiding hydrogenated oil. And then it was avoiding overly processed food. And then so when it was not packaged, it was, ah, I've been doing this a long time. Something else you said hit me like a ton of bricks. If I attend one of these and then I meet people, presumably some, several of whom have done it, who've, who've learned to think differently, who've transformed their organizations, who raise their kids this way, they've made this transformation. Then if there's a transformation of that scale, magnitude, level of life improvement to be made in an area that they have not made it in, and I have made those changes, but I haven't done the Deming stuff, then we could possibly have two, like, and then let's say it's not the worst collaboration in history, then presumably there's someone else will do it again in, within that firm or with the next firm or with someone else within that firm. And then there's the whole community of people who've made and, and corporations that have made the Deming change that could be on the forefront of making the environmental change, not just because the marketing and, and hiring the millennials, but for all of the reasons that they, are, that they can't express when they're trying to say what it's done for them then I don't have to do the sale, nor did they have to do the sale to me. That's correct. It's a win-win collaboration. And there's another thing that's demographically in your favor, which is there are a number of people who are getting older who have all they need more than they need. And now they're looking for a means to give back. They're looking for a means to make a difference in a way that they weren't able to do when they were building a company, acquiring wealth, you know, whatever it is, raising a family. Now they have more time. There's some another piece, uh, second part of the answer, though, is because you're a physicist, that control chart thinking, those statistics uh, and understanding, not just at its face value, but the nuances of control chart thinking, and now being able to make a mathematical case uh, around improvement, around cost, around return, that becomes very compelling. Because it's hard to argue with algebra. It's hard, right? It's hard to argue with statistics that are not manipulated. 
So it becomes another quiver, another arrow in your quiver to say, let's do the math. Let's do the math. And because of your background, you'll be able to do the math and we can guide you to how that applies to this type of thinking. Maybe it's a a food service company or a ingredient supplier or any number of, of uh, organizations in the food supply chain that might be very useful because they don't want to have waste and they want to do good things for the environment as well. They, they understand the sustainability, the agricultural model of uh, the soil and nutrients and where their products come from and why why they will refuse many of them refuse to adulterate their products in any way so they're they're looking for uh, a means to make that go forward they just haven't found the consultants who understand what you understand well, this is going to be very excited <laughs> i mean i guess mainly of connecting with the community of people who have had these transformations i presume most do most of them come to you or start this process skeptical, or I guess it sounds like they start with like, they expect to save some money and then they, they come for the money savings and they stay for the life transformation. Well, uh, <laughs> in some cases, usually during the course of uh, our work through the decades, we have had a number of companies who, who've come to us and said, we just want to be better. We just want to be smarter. We just, you know, they may be bored with what they're doing. They're very, they're doing well, but it's just not exciting anymore. And so they've heard about Deming. They've heard about something, but they're in the minority. The majority comes with uh, an issue to solve. There's a problem. And their diagnosis was uh, not correct because the, or, and, or the solution they applied was not correct. So through word of mouth, they may, uh, many of them, people come and they don't know anything about Deming yet. They just know that f- through referrals that these folks might be able to help us. So they they reach out to try to find somebody using their network uh, to do that. And it's the same model that I just described to you, which is, uh, so let's just look at it this way and see what happens. Because, you know, we, we know the, the theory and the practice, but they're not looking for a two and a half day seminar. They, they have a problem they want to solve. And so how, then the next question is, how did you do that? Uh, and we've worked on turnarounds through the years uh, and all of them are, are doing well and, and going forward. And, and I mention that because turnarounds are a crucible. There's no place for the nice to have. There's no place for theories or practices that do not have win-win results, that do not check all the boxes. So when we're working on turnaround, the first one, some of the first things we do is we get rid of performance appraisals. We get rid of commission sales. We, we break down barriers between departments, get rid of the silos, get rid of these fights about budgets, get fights about turf. They start to be one team and work together. Uh, in many cases, they won't do that until they're in a great pain. So the turnarounds become a crucible, a way to test Deming's theory like no other. Because there's just the variables are such that you can just stop doing things and, and the companies will let you do that because they've tried everything else. They've tried every traditional thing there is and they're still not going to be able to make payroll in th- three months or two months. How essential is the, the CEO or the leader? In terms of a transformation? Yeah. What's that person's role? 
Well, all right. So that's several questions. You know, the, Deming said that really the role of the senior leader is, is I'm oversimplifying, but it's really two things. One is to look out ahead, to scan the horizon, to be looking for opportunities, how to make the pie bigger, what are the innovations that we need to be happening looking for. And, and he said, don't worry about your competitor, because if, if you're worried about your competitor, you're already beaten. So it's not that he, you're ignoring your competitor, but the point is to try to make the pie bigger through innovation. And then the, the second thing is, is to help put everybody in the organization to work on the transformation to the new way of thinking, to the new philosophy of, of management. So that's the role of the senior leader in an oversimplified nutshell. The role of the manager then is to help uh, do several things. One, help people be successful within the system and processes and procedures, and to be continually improving those, rather than trying to hold individuals accountable, because through the math, through the control chart thinking, we can prove that about 94, 95, 96, 97 percent of the time, the outputs are the result of the system, mm-hmm. not the result of an individual. But yet most HR people are taught to, and other leaders are taught to look and blame people. And they're only about three to seven, six percent of the issue. So we're spending 97% of our resources on 3% of the problem. We need to flip that. That's thinking differently. I'm going to suggest to you, and I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to suggest to you that applying that thinking to environmental stewardship is exactly what has to happen. A lot of times we're anal- people are analyzing the wrong, they're coming up with the wrong diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The problem you name is the problem you work on. So it's really important to have some flexibility in how you name a problem. Because otherwise, you're going to put your resources on trying to fix something that's not going to have much leverage or is not, it's not the, the issue at all, right? It, it's, it's merely a symptom. But it's not a root issue. I don't know if that's helpful or not. But. Well, I got to tell you that when you were describing the turnaround situation, this crucible situation, a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, I want to master this and then head to D.C. But that's, that's, that's I think, a bit later. You're young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you're young. That means you have time to make those changes. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there's not a whole lot of time for the changes to happen in terms of the world, but, I don't, but desperation, I don't think, will help. But there is a snowball effect that can happen. So it, it happens within organizations, and it happens between organizations as well. So Deming said, for example, if you're an organization, include your customers mm-hmm. in your system's view. Include your, your suppliers yeah. in your system's view. It's not just you and your people, right? So in large, so in the same with environmental stewardship, we, we need to be able to include more things into our thinking that are part of our system. And I don't know that I have an environmental example. Yes, I do, actually. And it has more to do with um, uh, urban design for breathing space, for green space. I mean, these things are, are, have been around for a while, but it's only now that we're seeing the students in urban design and landscape architecture, for example, starting to look at how all these inputs fit together to create a community that is both good for people and the environment, right? So that, that starts to affect everything, whether it's using bicycles instead of automobiles, right? Whether it's, uh, making sure that there's more shade to reduce the amount of air conditioning that's needed or building a design where you don't need air conditioning. Well, I'll give you something's popping out of my head of naming things. Okay. So people are trying to make closed loop systems 
And so they think the challenge is that we haven't closed the loop. We've got to close the loop. That's their thinking. But if you expand the system to recognize that there's at the very least heat coming out, then suddenly you realize there is no closing the loop. And that's not a problem. But if, if you want to close the loop, you'll never be able to do it. And besides, it won't get the results you want. If, on the other hand, you include the heat output, and then you start have to include the solar input, well, then you start seeing nuclear is not a particularly effective solution because it still has waste coming out of it. And however you think it's going to be too cheap to meter, exponential growth will take care of that one pretty quickly. And yeah, it's a uh, fossil fuel. It's just a fossil fuel that even if you can take care of the radioactivity and you can take care of the complexity and the risk of, of breakdowns and so forth, you still run out. I understand what you're saying, and I'm not disagreeing. And I'm not an expert uh, by any means on the closed loop, open loop systems. But I, I do have uh, some knowledge of organizations that little by little, uh, at least and then the snowball effect, were able to not entirely close the loop to your point, but were able to use those negative outputs. So one, one of the things that Deming talks about with the uh, view of the organization as a system is you have outputs and some of them are desirable and some of them are undesirable. So we want to make more of the desirable ones and remove or mitigate the undesirable ones. Uh, and that's a process. That's where that plan, do, study, act process comes in and starts to ask, what if? What if we were to take the heat and do this with it? Is there a benefit some other way so that uh, we are really reducing waste to uh, practically nothing. Well, that, that will increase efficiency. And I, I have to say, efficiency is very important, but... Wouldn't it also increase effectiveness, though? It can increase effectiveness. The thing is that it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem of... If you don't turn off the spigot, the bathtub's going to keep filling up. And recycling, for example, makes things more efficient. It also creates a new supply of plastic. So you increase the supply, prices are going to drop, and you get individually wrapped apples, which nobody asked for. And then people say, well, it keeps it fresher longer. Well, it's like, well, now you have the apples sitting on the shelf longer. And did we want, what if, I mean, what we really want, I think is fresh apples without any plastic. And that's an example of naming the problem differently, yeah. right? That, and that, that is key. Borla got it that if you, yes, efficiency is important. Oh, here's how I put it. There's stories behind it to lead up to it, but if efficiency, re, there's reduce, reuse, recycle, reduce, reduces, say we, if we're talking about plastic, Reducing the supply of plastic means there's less plastic. Reusing and recycling shuffle it around. And so most people get reduce, reuse, recycle in that order, but in practice, they go for recycling and forget about re reducing. Not only is reducing more important, as everybody gets, but most people in practice forget about it because why? Because everyone's people who likes to push recycling? Well, Coca Cola does because it, it increases it growth. It's the opposite of reduction. So they sacrifice reduce to increase recycling, or as I put it, reducing is strategic and reusing and recycling are tactical. And if you don't have a strategy, all the tactics, tactics in the world won't get you anywhere. And they may even get you going in the opposite direction. And so many people say to me, Josh, we can't all be perfect like you, but at least we got to try. And it may be small and we're just getting started. But if you focus on tactics without having strategy or they're counter to the, uh, the strategy, I mean, that's a Reducing seems to me tactical, uh, strategic. I get that. And I think, uh, so two, a couple of things you mentioned. One is I, I worry about the perception of- if, Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Efficiency in general is tactical. Under strategy of figuring out how to level off the growth and, and 
to the extent we're in overshoot to reduce it. But without that strategy, the tactic is, is pointless. Yeah, well, it, it's the piece that uh, both Deming and Peter Drucker talked about, which is you can be as effective as possible, but if you're doing the wrong, working on the wrong thing, yeah. <laughs> so what? Uh, and some folks, uh, Deming folks, uh, business owners who uh, transform their businesses, uh, you know, say that's, that's one of the key things for them is to start thinking differently about strategy start thinking differently about the design of the system and how it works. Uh, but two other things came to mind as you were talking. One is, uh, I worry about the fact that so many people somehow look at you and think, I can't do that because he, he's doing it perfectly and, and I just don't have time for that or that's not my interest or whatever it is. That dynamic is not going to help, right? Uh, and I think that's probably your view too. You're not asking them to be like you. You're asking them to start think differently and find some things for themselves as yeah. well. Right. Yeah. It's not be like me. Uh, So that worries me, of course. But the second thing is the uh, uh, reduce. Uh, One of the things we noticed, and I and I don't know if it's scientifically sound or not. It's above my pay grade. But just going to the grocery store and not being able to take your own reusable, washable bags. uh, There's just so much more plastic being created in used and I suspect, quote, as you say, tactically recycled. And it's, you know, in a a country this size, and I presume that's the policy in most places, and if it, you know, they don't want people bringing contaminated, COVID-contaminated bags into the grocery store, I get that. But it seems to be a short-term response rather than uh, a strategic solution, I guess. If only it were merely short-term. Yeah. It's at best theater, but it's really misguided. I mean, it's making us sicker, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's arriving from a thoughtless, it's a, I think what you, you call conventional thinking. There's another piece that I, in terms of reflecting back on your question of what else you can do. There are a lot of things that fit very well with the Deming philosophy. And so the work of Tversky and Kahneman, you know, thinking fast and slow, the Nobel prize winners on uh, how the brain works, uh, useful, useful read thinking fast and slow. But there's another one, which is the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically says that, and I think it might be useful uh, to you, which basically says that when we're learning something new, it's typically the case, but not always the case. Once we learn a certain amount, our confidence level of how much we know goes way up because we learn so many new things. And that causes a problem because it means that what we're seeing, let's say the, just doing uh, four square feet, right? Two blocks and then on top of two blocks, four square feet, each is a square foot. And I've learned, say, three and a half of those blocks. So there's only a half a block left as I see the universe of whatever it is, playing tennis, learning about Deming, learning about how to be a better steward of the environment. The people who've been working on that topic for a while know that it's really, you know, 10 square feet, right? There are 10 blocks there. And they may have eight of them figured out, but they know, or seven of them figured out, but they know there's a lot of unknowns and there might even be more than 10 blocks. There might be more than three they don't know about. There might be 20 blocks total once they dig into it. Now, that's partly your journey. You you kept discovering more things that you could learn Mm -hmm. and do, right? But if I'm back into that effect where I have high confidence because I don't know how how big the universe of this topic is, then I'm not going to pursue it. 
Whereas those folks who can make that transition into the greater understanding of, hmm, I know some things, but I also know I don't know a lot of things. That's where the deep learning really starts. That's where the deep learning really starts. And getting folks from that, and they often have less confidence than the folks who have very little knowledge, Mm -hmm. right? Because if I have very little knowledge, I don't know how big that universe is. If I have a lot of knowledge, I know the universe is much bigger than I ever imagined it would be. So I might not be as confident. So that starts to skew psychology in weird ways. So I need to be more like Josh. Well, that's not what Josh is saying, but that's what I heard Josh say, right? Because I don't have an understanding of how big that universe is of things he's asking me to think about. But you're really giving a few principles to people to think about. And if they do that and enlarge on those, they'll see that there are more unknowns out there, but there are more known knowns as well. Does that make sense? Well, I'll tell you what's translating in my head is that when I, it almost feels like it's not only blocks, but other things entirely. Because most people, I think, approach the environment sustainability from a scientific standpoint, an education standpoint, that if, if people just know enough information, then they'll, do, then they'll act, which nowhere else does this work. And not much expectation that it would work here. It doesn't work with getting people off of addiction. It doesn't people help people get in shape. It doesn't help. And it's much more about emotions. We see the same thing in, in the, when the folks start in the two-and-a-half-day seminar, which is why it's very experiential. We, don't, we have very little lecture mm-hmm. in that seminar because it's really hands-on activities so that it crosses the gatekeeper in the brain that says, this can't be true. How, how can quality go up and costs go down? That just can't be true. But when they start doing it, then they realize, oh, it is true. Exactly right. But you can't tell them that this is true and you can do it. Yeah, okay. I, you know, I hear you, but I don't believe you. That's your point, right? Yeah. It's the issue with the environment. Yes, there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than we can handle. There's more plastic in the oceans and things like that. The solution is not measuring more carbon dioxide. It is not doing more science. I'm a big fan of doing more science. Yes, do not stop. But historically, we've taken... The voice has come from scientists, journalists, politicians, and educators. In one ear and out the other. Well, great. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's great information, <laughs> but the, their motivations is not, they are not motivated nor trained nor skilled to influence people's behavior, except to buy more newspapers, to vote for them. But they're following others. They're not leading anyone. So there's a big missing component of leaders. And what's missing is, you know, it's much more like if you want to get in shape, probably more useful to go to a physical trainer than an MD, even though the MD has much more, a longer, a bigger education that's more respected by society, but it's not actually what you want if, if you want to you know, bench press more. That's a great analogy. Well, it's, it's my world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we, all the reporters go to the scientists and the universities and universities are, they're like at the bottom of, in terms of stewardship, in terms of, they're really, they have no clue what to do or even what the, the nature of the game is. They're just going to give you more facts. And when I went up to Lamont Doherty, Columbia's Earth Science Institute, I don't want to overcharacterize it because it's not like I really got to know them very well, but you know, they want to go to the senators and say, this is the law to pass. We know the facts and this is what's right and you should do this. Well, there's a couple problems with this. One of them is that the fossil fuel companies are saying, we know what's right, do this. And they have a lot more assets and they have, a lot more, they have a lot more influence. And who's right and who's wrong depends on your values because different values mean you value different things. More fundamental to me is that they're trying to circumvent democracy. And 
I think I want to get the votes. I agree with the science, but I don't agree with the process. And I think that if the cure is worse than a disease, I'd rather go down with the disease than try some authoritarian measure of like forcing stuff on people, which I think gets people to push back. Yeah, uh, that triggers a thought about uh, uh, Deming and effectiveness. So he, he was asked about what's the role of government. And so, you know, here's a guy who uh, helped win the Second World War with his uh, different way of thinking uh, about uh, quality and, and production and the role of people and jobs, et cetera. But his answer at this, at this particular context was uh, equity, meaning fairness. But the role of government in a democracy is about making sure there's fairness. At the same time, recognizing that, that there's no such thing, ultimately, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's just it's too sub- fairness. The word fairness is just too subjective. But the pursuit of that is a useful thing, a noble thing. So I'm also circling back then to. What if the university, and I, you know, this is outside of my area of expertise, but what if the university was able to partner with you and uh, an organization that wanted to think differently to now go to Congress and say, we have this organization and maybe five others who are, are who would like to try this approach, but they need, they need some support to be able to do that, or they need to have some regulations that, that permit them to collaborate so it's not seen as seen as anti-competitive behavior so they're you know whether that's a trade association or something else so those are that's a pretty big that's i don't know if it's boiling the ocean but it's 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 pretty big but it but it starts with some collab potentially it starts with some collaboration between some organizations that are you know it's something we see in business a lot these days is more regulation tends to help the larger companies because they have the the resources to be able to accommodate those regulations. Now, the smaller companies, that, that's a huge extra burden on overhead. So the place to look for those partners might be with the smaller or medium-sized companies that uh, are not lobbying for, for regulations that will help the big guys. Yeah, there's a funny thing about goals. And you know, it's useful to have something out there to give you direction to, for your choices today. And yeah, I guess I, at this point, my head is swimming with the potential. And I think the next step, at least for me personally, is to attend one of these things. I don't know what to expect in terms of you know, how the exercises will get me to behave and change my thinking. But the feeling of connecting with the community seems like, what's the word, like huge. Well, I also, from, from your TED Talks and, and the, the thinking that I heard there is uh, very much in alignment with Deming, uh, because even though we say it's thinking differently, it's it's really thinking naturally. It comes from something deep within people. Uh, and once they understand that if what I want to be doing is uh, holding the system in which people work accountable, so the policies and the procedures and the good training or poor training and how we onboard people and how we thank people and how we work together to figure things out, that all is natural. That collaborative approach is feels very natural to most people, whereas trying to hold an individual accountable for the results of the systems does not feel natural. It does not feel natural or good to punish people for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So a lot of these things that Deming talks about are 
tap into who we are, our essential nature as, as humans. So I don't think you're going to you're going to find some things that are very much in alignment with what you're thinking, and I and I believe it will help you even raise your game further because it, it is organized in a way that I think even from the reading you've done, it's it's organized in a way that's different and useful, and so it causes. I mean, it happened to me, and it, and it, I've heard other people have said it to me. I could feel my brain working. I, I was ting- my brain was tingling as we went through this. Uh, that's never happened to me before, and it blew me away. And I mean, one of the things we tell people is you can start doing things the next day, mm-hmm. but you'll still have things that you can be doing twenty five years from now because of the depth and breadth of what Deming was talking about in that application. And people come back to the seminar three, four, five, six times, because every time they come back, they're in a different place, personally and in their businesses. Mm -hmm. They're in a different place. And so they're hearing things now that they didn't hear. They heard them before, but they didn't process them before. It sounds almost like it's like art. I mean, what you're describing to me sounds like learning an art. Well, there are skills related to it, and art certainly has some skills. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it's when you first start playing piano or going on stage and saying your lines, you're it's very mechanical, and you know, put this finger on this string and move the bow in this direction, and don't too much, not too much pressure, not too little pressure. Even before that, it's like if it's a guitar, you know, this is this is you turn this little thing and it makes it string tighter. You turn it the other way, it makes it a little looser. And then that sounds very mechanical. You know, this chord, put these fingers in these places and strum like that. Well, isn't that partly a function? Of, well, I suppose, of, you know, of practice, right? Just becoming, uh, getting the psychomotor reactions, if that's what they are, uh, to interact in a way that it's less mechanical, right? So it becomes a part of the instrument. I mean, every, every great musician I've ever seen, uh, and I would say even true with Pavarotti, right? That voice, that uh, the instrument, His whatever instrument. it is, yeah. is a part, uh, or even if it's a guitar or a violin or whatever it is, becomes an extension of the neuromuscular system of the body. Yeah, it's as much as your tongue and lips are when you speak. Yes. And so I'd say I would agree with you if you're, what you're saying is that it becomes, over time, as you learn a new way of thinking and Deming's approach, your questions get better. Uh, your brain gets, I don't know, bigger, better, whatever, but there's greater insight, right? Because diagnosis is better because now you have the better, you have four great tools for diagnosis. What's going on with variation? What's going on with the system? What's going on with human psychology? And how do I know what I think I know is really so, which is theory of knowledge. Those four things, I use them, condemning people use them all day long, all day long to figure things out. When you master each, you have to master the low levels to get to the middle levels and, and so on until you get to really, when someone masters an art form, they talk about life. There's a story, I would love to have seen it, that of, of Roger Federer meeting Tiger Woods. Yeah. Now, a tennis racket doesn't look much like a golf club, but supposedly they got, on, got along famously. And I suspect that they could talk about things that you and I wouldn't quite get. But if Michael Jordan hopped, you know, passed into, the, got into the room, or General Petraeus, or pick an art form, you know, 
yeah. Malcolm Gladwell as a right. storyteller. I think that yeah. anyone could walk in and be like, you know, I know just what you're talking about. Oprah, you know, she would, you know, for her, it would be something more about speaking empathetically as opposed to putting the ball on the hoop. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very high level of mastery, right? And one of the nice things about Deming is that you can improve whatever it is you're setting out to improve right from the get-go without having, I guess to put in the analogy of, uh, uh, you know, Roger Federer, uh, you can, you're going to win a bunch of tennis matches right away, right away. You don't have to have that match. You're not going to win Wimbledon <laughs> right away, but you're going to start where you are and uh, make a difference. And, and that's, that's life. That's excitement. That's uh, intrinsic motivation. That's joy to be able to start making a difference, even at that initial level. And that comes from something inside that, that the technique liberates. It doesn't create. I would, yeah, I think that's exactly true. But, right. The, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't like to refer to, to Deming's philosophy as technique. There are certainly a- approaches and methods within that, within the body of work. Uh, but your point is the same. It, it brings, it, it taps into what you have. Yeah. It taps, it, it brings forth. It allows you to be all you can be. You know, and that makes me think of Maslow, Abraham Maslow. Most people know about the uh, the pyramid, right? Self-actualization is at the top of the pyramid, hierarchy of needs. But very few people have actually read what Maslow said about it. So, you know, we, we start at the bottom with the, you know, satisfying the safety needs, right? Our, our cave is safe and we have a tool to beat back the saber-toothed tiger or whatever it is. We have food. And as you move up, uh, in that pyramid to the top, at, and this is what I was saying before, in terms of those folks who are at a point in their lives where they want to self-actualize, they want to be all they can be. And what they recognize in themselves, I believe, and this is what Maslow said, which most people don't know about Maslow, is to be all you can be, you have to help others be all that they can be. You cannot truly self-actualize just by self-actualizing yourself. So, uh, we've encountered folks who said, well, Maslow says, you know, I, I need to be all that I can be. Yes. And to do that, you, you have to help others be all that they can be. And that may have something to do with environmental stewardship as well. Because if I have led uh, my brain, the children's brains are going to be uh, affected by that. Or if I'm breathing pollutants, right? So that pyramid of being all that you can be, it depends in part on the stages of a person's life and their circumstances as well. You've chosen to do it younger. You're young. <laughs> <laughs> Just turned 49. So still got halfway, half, half left. <laughs> yeah. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Okay, I'm swimming in stuff now. I want to process it. So I want to walk you through the process that we talked about before about that you saw in the TEDx talk. So the environment, is it something 
I take it as something meaningful for you, but I better make sure. Of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So when you think about the environment, especially if, it's some, if you think about your action, your behavior with respect to it, what do you think about? What are some things that come to mind? Well, it's, it's a, a big one for me because uh, nature in itself is very nurturing for me and very inspirational and very uh, a spiritual experience for me, as is clean air and clean water and sustainability and, I, I guess, protecting the earth, right, so that those things can continue. When you say spiritual, is it, or nurturing, is it, my first thought is maybe you've had some experiences where you felt reborn or something ethereal uh, every time I go into nature, I feel reborn. I, mean, I, I live in the city. I grew up in the country. So going, going into the country, going into especially trees for me, trees and water, uh, lakes, even more than the ocean. My breathing is deeper. I think my pulse both speeds up and slows down, if that makes huh. sense, right? There's an excitement, an acceleration, but also a serenity. There's just nothing else. I, I suppose it's releasing all kinds of endorphins. I, I don't quite know how all that works, but it's, uh, it's very powerful for me. Can you walk me through, like, is there a specific case that comes to mind or has it happened recently or is there a first time? Uh, well, the first time probably would have been a long time ago, but uh, there's a place where we go, uh, well, we're not this year, uh, on vacation up in the Great Lakes in, in, in Michigan. That's a, uh, a little-known park, so I'm not going to give you the name of it. <laughs> I don't want to be overrun by New Yorkers. But uh, everything there, from the minute you uh, go through the gate, I mean, it's just a walkthrough, right? There's a little gravel parking lot for a handful of cars. Uh, you, can, you can see Lake Huron. You smell the trees. Uh, the air is clean. There's usually a breeze. Whether it's in the sun or the rain, it's just magical. It's just, it's just a magical thing. It puts one in touch with oneself and with others, I think. It's, uh, uh, Nin talked about the well of humanity, right? It helps put my feet into the well of humanity as well into the well of the environment. It sounds crazy, I know. <laughs> it's, it sounds spiritual. It sounds uh, like a rebirth. And, I'm going to digress for a second, to, not digress, but regress to something you said earlier about Maslow. And you talked about my language here, not yours. So sorry if I get it a little bit off, but there's a service component that you can't just actualize yourself. We are, I would say we're a social species. And I believe that there's a third leg to that stool. There's yourself, there's others, and there's nature. And that, that is not an add-on. And that that's something we've put off for a long time as a culture, as a species. And uh, I'm saying this a bunch be with, I'm working with Spartan Race. I don't know if you know them, but they're, uh, they do obstacle courses on weekends and people challenge themselves and they have to work very hard. And people think, some, for some people, it's probably fun. You get muddy, you crawl through the mud underneath the barbed wire, jump over the fence, work with teams. But the people who really get it, it's about heart and mind, body and soul. And only by challenging yourself, sitting on the couch just doesn't do it. They, their goal is to get 100,000, 100 million people off the couch mm. and living. And I'm saying to them that there's a third component, there's mind, body, there's nature. And when you were talking about Maslow, I was thinking this third leg, I think is, is it's inseparable. And we can separate it, but at our loss. You know, that certainly works for me. I'd never thought about that. That's very provocative. I, I want to reflect on that because I think that, that hits home. Yeah, you know, there's some books that I've read on 
nature before humans. It's unbelievable. I mean, people go to Maine so they can see a whale. Their captain's reports where there were whales as far as the eye could see for days on end. Their ships before steam sailing across the Atlantic Ocean would get stopped in the middle of the ocean because the sea was so dense with fish. No land in sight. In the middle of the ocean, it's so dense with fish that the ships are just stuck. What we, and we think of Africa as the nation with the biggest wildlife. North America, before humans arrived, I'm not talking Europeans, I'm talking what we call Native Americans, the wildlife here was much bigger than there. That's amazing. It was, I mean, there was, it was like incomparably more. And of course, everywhere we show up, the big things get eaten. It's, it's ironic that the place where we were first, it's speculated that the large animals exist because they, they evolved with us. We didn't just show up on the scene. And so they knew to be scared. They knew to keep away from us or adopt whatever behaviors, protections worked for them. Whereas the other places we just showed up and like the, they all went the way of the dodo, including the dodo. So re- learning about that, like thinking to keep what we have now is like a minor goal to get to what these feelings of our emotions of joy and discovery and all these things, they're not new. They, our ancestors had them too, but I don't think we have it as much. I don't think that we actually experience these things as much as they did. Yeah. Not only that, I think many, if you've not grown up with the access to nature, it can feel very weird and scary. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember meeting a fellow who part of his giving back was to take inner city kids in LA up into the mountains. They'd never seen the stars. It's unfathomable to me. What I really want to do is bring nature to the city and take an abandoned building and make it into a park. And because yes, it's great to escape it, but better to have, we don't have to escape in the first place. So back to you, (laughs) that was my (laughs) digression or regression. Yeah. Based on what you described, these feelings that you felt and I suspect kind of feel now, I invite you at your option to think of something to do to act on those feelings, the feelings that that nature brings up in you. And most people hear something different than I asked. I'm not saying what's the biggest or most important thing that you could do or what does the New York Times suggest or the Greenpeace. It's not about the world. This is about you to do something that you want. And the, the constraints are... It has to be something that you do with your own hands. So, because so many people say, oh, I got a team, I'll get them to do it. Well, you know, Deming, you can't outsource quality. You can't delegate that. So it has to be something you do. It has to have, you don't have to measure it, but it has to have some measurable effect. So reading and learning and raising awareness, that's great, but don't stop there because the environment doesn't react to those things. It reacts to your behavior. And it has to be something new. So a lot of people, there's a lot of stuff that they're already doing. Great, no problem with that. But this is going to be something new that you add on to that. And I can guarantee you that after you do it, you'll be glad you did. As for how long or how big or small, that doesn't matter. It can be trivial. Actually, I'll share with you. I haven't talked about this for a while. One guy, he's, he was just going to turn his cell phone off earlier each evening. And I was like, cell phones don't use a whole lot of power. That's like the almost the smallest amount. <laughs> and then I talked to him a little while later and he's like, the screen broke. And instead of fixing it, he just extended it. And he's... And, it became about spending time with his wife and dog and going to the beach together. And so these, as yeah. you heard me say on the third TEDx talk, it's, it's, it's not how big or small it is. It's if it's meaningful, if it's meaningful, it'll, it'll happen again and then it'll get big automatically. So I wonder if anything comes to mind. Not at this moment. I have to confess because, uh, 
you put me in touch with something that's much bigger than, I mean, in terms of the emotion than I was aware of from having just watched your TED Talk, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the way you just walked me through that experience, to me, there has to be, I want to reflect on a spiritual aspect. That's, That's a piece that I've certainly verbalized before, but you were able to capture it and frame it in a way that uh, is much more meaningful uh, to me. So I'm, I'm kind of reeling from that a bit, which is nice. It's a great feeling. Yeah, me telling people how delicious my food is just does not capture how delicious <laughs> the food is. Like, I have these cherry tomatoes here. And I know the farmers. I go to the farm every year. I hope, I, I hope we can make it this year. It's usually on Labor Day. I don't eat for like 24 hours before I go there. And I exercise that morning to maximize my hunger and there i will take the cherry tomatoes and i will because they pick them early so when i get there it's the ones that like somehow didn't get picked and i without taking it off the plant put the cherry tomato in my mouth and eat it while still connected because in that second it's possible that a little flavor is lost and then i do that with like about as every single one i can last year the cherry tomatoes weren't around and it was um uh tomatillos there were a lot of which I love. Most people don't know you can just eat them raw, but they hurt my throat. They do the scratchy thing in my throat. So yeah. I ate as many as I could until it was painful. Then I ate a few more because they taste so good. But I can say that. But this might be a good bookend for you. Dr. Deming, one of his hobbies was growing tomatoes. Oh, I don't man. know if you knew that. <laughs> I didn't know that, but yes. I have my tomato plant over there in my apartment. Yeah, growing tomatoes. <laughs> now, you're par for the course, though, for not immediately seeing what to do. Yeah. But... I know from experience, I believe from experience, okay. that the best thing to do now is to find something to do that ends up a smart goal that will take the, if you just think about it and reflect, great. Yeah. But when your hands get involved, it will, I don't, have to, I don't think I have to tell you that it will take it to another level. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> I just don't. So when's the last time... I want to bring something else in. You, you contrasted those feelings with being in the city. Yeah. And oftentimes that contrast helps. Because when was the last, do you remember a time recently or any time when you felt like this is the city and I need more country? Or when those feelings, when you thought about going there or, or you thought like this is the sort of thing I need to go there for or something like that? Well, I'm, I'm happy. I love living in the city as well. Uh, and have been able to, uh, oh, so maybe this, I, I don't know. I have uh, one of my hobbies is uh, doing sort of landscaping. And we have a quarter of an acre here in the city. Uh, so it's not really a garden, it's a woodland. We have, in, in that small space, we have uh, eight trees, eight and oak and ginkgos, and a large white cedar. So it's, it's really a woodland. Rather. Male ginkgo or female? No, all, all male, all male. So no, no seeds. No seeds. Okay. <laughs> no stinky seeds. <laughs> <laughs> I just forged some in the city. I was going and I saw oh ginkgo plant, and I learned that you could forge them. So I brought them home and I cooked them and I ate them. And I was very happy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ah, I didn't know that. I'm really getting into foraging. You should see me with the berries, and I won't tell people where they are. <laughs> if you come to, next time, you come to New York, I'll take it. I'll take it foraging. That'd be great. No, I'd like that. I've barely scratched the surface, but I know the ones that I like. Oh, that sounds great. No, I'd like that. So 
maybe it has something to do with, uh, I mean, and part of the reason we planted all those trees was not just for the aesthetic effect, but for the, the shade giving properties and the carbon dioxide, et cetera. I mean, it was a part of the plan uh, to do that. So maybe I just need to plant some more things. There is some space out there still. Does that qualify? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't if you hired someone to come into it for you? No, no, I do it myself. I mean, I had the, the oak was large, a five inch caliper when we brought it in. So that did require a crew, but I did help. Yeah. But I, but everything else uh, I planted myself. So. Did this conversation prompt you to think about planting more? Is planting more something that was... No, it's always on my mind, but it's been so hot here that planting more now is not the time. It's the autumn to, to do the next round. So being grounded by COVID in the spring, I was able to, to really dig in the dirt and uh, plant, I don't know, probably 50 new uh, perennials around the yard. But there's room for another 50, I think, if I plant carefully. So let's make it a smart goal. And because what I'll say is we'll get it to a certain point where it's clear what to do. And then I'll ask how about to schedule when we'll talk about it afterward. Okay, sure. Uh, So how long do you think it'll take to get enough things planted, which might be one or might be just, I don't know, whatever to where, if I ask you, how did it go? You'll Mm -hmm. be able to say something happened. Well, I would say once the weather cools off, I'm not sure I understand the question, but it's the, uh, I can plant one thing and, 20 minutes probably, but I can, if I spend a half day, I can plan 20 things perhaps. Well, this is where it's up to you because I know from experience that if you said, I'm going to, I'm going to do the quick and easy, I'm just going to say, I'm going to plant one thing today. And Josh, you can talk, I can talk to me tomorrow. I know Uh, that that will change, that that will make the 20 faster anyway, if you want to do the 20 or you'll figure out you don't want to do it, but something will happen in doing that one. Well, the, yes. I'm not saying you should do the one. I mean, it might be that you want to do 20 or 50. No, I'm happy to do 10 or 20, but I can't do it until the weather changes. So that's fine. Uh, once it gets a little cooler, I can prepare the soil. So you know gardening more than I do? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> and what do you think, how many, it sounds to me like the number of things and... But let's say 10. Okay, so if you plant 10... Yeah. things. Do you need to name now what they would be, or that's something you would come up, that would be part of the process? Uh, I would say heliobores and perhaps some uh, rhododendrons. Uh, you remind me, my mom loves her rhododendrons. Okay. And each time you talk about heat, you remind me that I've been meaning to plant some jalapenos or habaneros for a while, but I'll get around to that. Actually, the, I keep getting inspired back by my guests, and I keep talking to people about doing things. And then it gets me to do stuff that I've been putting on the, uh, that's been on the back burner for me. Okay. So it sounds like, you know, what you want to plant, how many you want to plant. Mm -hmm. When would be a good time to schedule a conversation for how that went? And if it's, if it's after September or October or whatever, I don't know what the right time is, then, then then so be it. Yeah. I would say November just to be, just to be safe because uh, they want to plant these things when it's still really hot. So then we will, I'm sure we'll talk between now and November, but after we hang up, I propose that we get up the calendars and schedule a second conversation. Okay. And now I've, I've been kind of nudging you here. Mm-hmm. What's the motivation behind doing this? Is it because of me? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I was looking forward to the autumn in any case. So I, I didn't figure I'd be flying again every week or, or every other week uh, this year. Uh, so I was already looking ahead to the autumn to do that. 
So the motivation is to continue to work on the woodland. Okay. Yeah. I always like to make sure people like doing this stuff, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if other people would like to garden. No, I like digging in the dirt. Yeah. I like seeing things grow uh-huh. as well. Uh, so here's where I say, how do you think you'll feel doing this? And how do you think you'll want to ask you how it went? I think I'll feel great about it. I think I'll feel, feel a sense of accomplishment and uh, joy that it, it looks good. And uh, I, I think I'll have gratitude for having the wherewithal to have the land to do that with and, you know, feeling lucky. Now, I predict that all sounds awesome. And I predict it will be significantly greater than that. Okay. And even if you take into account the words that I just said, it will still be greater than that. Okay. Can you give me an example? <laughs> me talking about the cherry tomato. Like I knew the cherry tomatoes t- tasted better when you got them off the vine than when you get them at, a, at a, um, a salad bar. Right. Yeah. But I can't tell until I taste it. And then I taste these things and I just have to stop what I'm doing and pause for, you know, 30 seconds to just let the flavors mingle. Yeah. And I suspect that there'll be also a, um, a component. How many people live in your home? Two. So there'll be a component of you and, and the other person. My wife, that yes. Will, yes. You and your wife will get yes. involved with this. There'll be you and the person at the store. There'll be you and thinking right. of someone else is going to live in this house somewhere down the road. And right. These other components come into play. And these things that it's so much greater what stewardship means that we can't tell until we, when we do it, it, it all becomes, this is what drives me. This is why I love what I do. It's this lost thing that you know better than I do because you described the experience up by Lake Huron. That's what you're going to get. When I'm picking up garbage every day, yeah. I'm connecting with Yosemite. I see. Cool. And I'm connecting with people who live in the Philippines because it's the same ocean. And that, that's why. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. And <laughs> let's wrap up here. I like to... Stop. At the end, I'd like to ask if there's anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything you want to say directly to listeners. No, I, I'm uh, generally excited for you uh, and, and to c- continue our, this conversation as you learn more about Deming because uh, it's your passion and uh, insight and intelligence and what you already know combined with the Deming's Different way of thinking, I think, is a very powerful combination. It will be very powerful. I think I, I think I would reflect back to you the same thing, which is uh, you're, going to, you're going to have uh, ahas that you didn't know were possible. So just like with me doing the planting, you're, you're going to have cherry tomatoes writ large. I mean, <laughs> whatever the analogy would be. Yeah, I can say that transforming Japan if that's not speaking too glibly, is something that's outside of my horizon right now. <laughs> I, I believe that it's, it's attainable yeah. and desirable and enjoyable. And I think people, if that happens with the United States on the way to happening with the world, yeah. I think everyone in the United States, I think overwhelmingly people would be overjoyed at that, at that transformation. And yeah, so there's a lot of aha moments between now and where I'm, I feel like I can be a major right. part of that. Yeah. There's a question I wanted to ask earlier, and I hope you don't mind if I tack it on at the end, is that I think that it's, if I tap into this community and I connect with people who, when you're talking about the turnarounds, there was a, you spoke with such experience. It was clear that you've been through situations like this. We have to get rid of the, the performance space and the, all that. And 
And I thought, man, I would love to work with someone who has been through that enough that they can do the, they know the turnaround part. They don't know the stewardship part. And I thought, I can't wait to see it in action because I want to see it once or twice, be a part of it, bring it to other places. Am I also, am I not flat, am I flattering myself or not flattering myself to think that they will get from me just as much as I get from them? Oh, I, I don't think it has anything to do with flattery. I think that's the, the Deming model is the win-win collaboration. And if it doesn't look like that, then it shouldn't happen. Because win-lose, Deming pointed out, there's no such thing really for very long as win-lose. Uh, it becomes lose-lose. So it's either win-win or lose-lose. And so when we go, even in case for turnaround, when we go into a turnaround, we've turned some down because we didn't think there was enough runway left to land the plane. In other words, they, they had not enough resources uh, and we did not want to be taking their money that could be going to payroll or other things uh, if we didn't feel we could help them. So in other words, we did our analysis and said, we can do this. We can help these people. But if the analysis is it's too late, then we bow out uh, because that, that would be dishonest. Uh, I don't know it would be dishonest. It would be, it would be against our value system. Uh, to start down something we didn't think we could be successful at. Okay, so people who've done this would say, Josh has something interesting there. And if it works for them, they'll expect this will be win-win. And if it won't, they'll say, good luck. There'll, there'll be robust discussions about what, how do we get started? What would it look like to get started? And what might, if that's successful, and then what might be the next little thing to try? And pretty soon the momentum starts to build and you have more things going on. and more momentum going and then pretty soon it's it's uh takes on uh it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle i don't know if that makes sense or not but that's how it works yeah i tend to think of when you take initiative on something an entrepreneurial project for example yeah there's a stage where it takes on a life of its own where if i don't know if this is the best way to say it, but if one of the people gets hit by bus it will keep going even if it was the person who started it right you've created a system to keep it going yeah all right, we could easily, I know that we could go on for another six or seven hours. <laughs> That'd be fun. So I'll wrap up here and I look forward to following up uh, both Great. the recordings and also with the workshops. All right. Well, Kelly Allen, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. It was great fun. I appreciate it. After we finished recording, we already started following up with whom to talk to next. I didn't dream before this conversation that there might already exist a community of organizations and people who have transformed similarly to what I'm talking about in stewardship in other areas that would love to transform again in this new way, new for them. I thought about finding people and organizations with the biggest demand, the biggest potential for change that I was most connected to or other ways, but I hadn't thought of people or organizations most skilled at systemic change, beginning with personal transformation, nor of connecting with someone at the middle of such a community who also loves that kind of experience. Maybe this is the beginning of a big initiative, a new direction to work with, a new community to work with. I suspect I'll learn as much as anyone. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.